We're in Genesis 8, verse 20. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 20. Why are we in chapter 8, verse 20? Because last week we ended with chapter 8, verse 19. We just keep moving um, through Scripture. Now, just as a kind of a, a heads up, the way this looks is Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17 today. And then next week is going to cover really 9, 18 through 10, 32. There's a lot of genealogy in there, and, and we're not going to break them all down, but, but there's that um, Noah's descendants and how they fill the earth. And then we're going to do uh, the Tower of Babel the following week. So two weeks from now, we'll be in Genesis 11. And then we're going to take a break in August, and we're just going to do Psalms for about a month. Everybody's life, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, all of society is about to get really crazy in August because all of the rhythms of a city change because school is about to start back teachers are panicking and and preparing and we all know teachers and then even beyond that as school starts you got bus routes you got all of life is changing in august so we're going to be in psalms for about a month or so and then we will come back to genesis 12 through 50. Um, so that's kind of our our plan but um wanted to just kind of give you that heads up all right so here we go genesis 8 20 through 917. Uh, last week, Noah came off the ark, and then now it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse 7 goes on. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds on the earth and the bow is seen in the heavens, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That's our passage. And as I read that, like if I'm just sitting there kind of thinking realistically, I've got two main thoughts. What's going on with this covenant? And number two, why does it even matter right now? So that's kind of the breakdown. Those are the two points. I know that's not three. There's no division of three in all of this. Um, even moving through into sub points, I kind of kind of joke about that quite a bit. But there, there's two main points. What's going on with this covenant? And the big part is, why does that even matter? Like, why does it matter right now for us to read Genesis 8:20 through 9:17 and sit here and go, "Oh my goodness, look at the greatness of God." I've read this so many times throughout the one-year Bible study that I start and then I've got to stop again, and then I start and I got to stop again because I got three days off. I was visiting with uh, Matt the other day, and man, he's uh, he's bulldozing through his one-year plan. Like I'm impressed, and he's like, "You got to be on it. You got to be diligent." And I'm sitting there quietly eating my chips and salsa going, I'm not that diligent. Like, I miss a day, I'm done. Like, and I can't just skip a day. So those of you who do the one-year Bible plan and you push through it and you're, you're good, fantastic. That's awesome. I can't do that. Okay, but I've read this from childhood, right? From the time I was a new Christian in seventh grade and, and you're on fire and I'm reading Genesis because no one ever told me you don't have to start in Genesis no one ever said it's good to start in the New Testament. So I kept rebooting because no one was discipling me. No one was telling me what I should be doing as a new Christian. Y'all, by the way, just as a side note, that's what we want to be mindful of as a church, right? We baptized uh, two people over in that corner a few months ago. <clears throat> Excuse me, a few months ago. And Brandon is further along in his, his life walk and his understanding of God and the gospel. Absolutely, but I baptized my son. And I know that there are some who would say that you shouldn't baptize kids, and then there are some who say you should baptize every kid. I'm sitting here as someone who did youth ministry for eight years and then walked along in different levels of ministry. I don't think the problem is the age at which we uh, baptize. The problem is, did we ever disciple them? And so we must disciple. And no one was walking alongside me. So that's my roundabout way of saying I read this, and I've read it, and I've read it, and I've read it. And he's telling like, there's the rainbow, so he's not going to flood the world again. And that's about the depth of the thought I had. Y'all, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction so that we may be mature and grow into him. So I, I kept my two main thoughts. As a Christian, looking at this, knowing that this is profitable for teaching, what's going on and why does it even matter? And so here's, here's a couple of things I think we need to pay attention to. First, what's going on? What is Noah's response once he exits the ark? What does he do? He worships. Not a Sunday gathering worship. Like, this is normal. Like, we know that on a Sunday, we're going to get up, we're going to prioritize, that we're going to gather with other saints. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a church gathering, but this isn't church. Church exists throughout all the world, throughout all time. Monday, whenever I'm in Branson and, and Brad's um, back at work, right, this week. Okay, so Brad's back at work working with athletes, and Trent is working in his shop, and Jared's up in, in northwest Arkansas. Even though we're all scattered, we're still the church. This is, this is just where we gather. So we're really trying to be committed 
to, to that time of gathering, but that also that time of going and being the church with expression as we walk in this world. Okay, so that said, Noah's response is that he worshipped. He came off the boat and he sacrificed. That was his act of worship. Keep in mind what this guy's just gone through. Whenever I say not just Sunday worship, you and I might have had a kind of crazy morning. We might have had a, a long week. We might be kind of weary. This guy leaves the ark that he's been on for over a year, locked up with his family, right? Nowhere to go. Locked up with numerous animals that he had to tend to and take care of. Before that, he constructed the ark for 120 years, facing mocking and ridicule. So for 121 years, this has been his life, constructing an ark in a desert, being obedient to God. God shuts him in. And then remember the darkness of this. This is not just a flood. This is judgment on the world. He hears and witnesses the death and the drowning of absolutely everything else in this world. And yet he's held safe through it. And so he exits the ark into this new world. And in light of God's mercy, through sustaining him, through the judgment, his response is, I will worship. That's where those seven animals come in really handy. Two of every animal, but he brought seven extra clean so that he could worship to the Lord. So his immediate response is, is worship in light of God's mercy amidst dark days. So, yes, you and I, we may, just practical application, okay? Because if we just preach Scripture, but we don't apply it and look at it in the context of our lives, and... and and we don't always do that whenever we preach, but, but just keep in mind that yes, the days are dark, the valleys are deep and long. You and I may get diagnoses and situations that we don't know what to do with, and yet we also have that odd security that God is with us. We're buoyed up in the ark of His daily salvation. And our response is praise God. Always turning back to worship. Now, this is the part, this next one, A21 through 22, this is the part that, that I, just, I love it, okay? Verse 21 through 22, but I'm really just looking at 21 to be honest, so forget the 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay, so it starts positive and great. And then there's like that want want part where he just kind of goes downhill, right? He's pleased with the aroma. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Noah. And then God also says, and by the way, man's always evil, even from his youth. And so we're going to reckon with that here in just a second. But you know what word I loved? Like, I forget this. I taught in a Catholic school for nine years. I've been... Uh, a Christian since I was in seventh grade until now, and that's been a while. And I'm really good at guilt. Man, I am good at guilt. I am, I am good at beating myself up. So are you. Like, doesn't matter how strong your faith life is, your walk, no matter where you've seen the goodness of God, we, for some reason, as Christians, we're also prone to discouragement. And so we see a weakness and a frailty in our lives, and we see that, and that becomes this mountain. And so I forget the pleasure of God towards his people. Just remember that, that Zephaniah says that he dances and delights over you, that you're his child, and that as his child, just imagine how we as, 
as uh, imperfect fathers care and love for, for our kids. So we being children of God, how much greater is his infinite love towards us? Like just keep in mind, but that word pleasing, it just made me smile. I know that's cheesy, but that's okay. The sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God. And the reason I think the church needs to be reminded of that is we, we tend to profess such a great, high, mighty, holy, powerful God that if we're not careful, all we end up preaching is his displeasure of man as well. He is displeased with sin. He hates sin. He is, uh, sin, Isaiah says, is what separates us from God. But just look at his response. Whenever we church, whenever we Christians, so this is not written for the world, this is for people who are pursuing God, when we sacrifice unto the Lord, it is a pleasing aroma. There is satisfaction with God because Christ has become that aroma for us. Scripture says that we are the aroma of Christ in this world. For some, we're a pleasing aroma because they love God, and for others, we're a stench because they don't love God. But one way or the other, y'all, we've got an aroma. It's what is that aroma as we walk in this world? God smells the sacrifice of Noah, and he is pleased. You and I do not have a distant, cold, dis, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a distant, cold, disconnected God. We have a God who, though he's in the heavens, he leans near and he's pleased with the sacrifice of his people. It's imperfect. Can I sing? Oh, no. Ever watch me during worship? I'm not trying to distract you, but you'll see me reach over and I'm making sure that microphone is off because if my voice comes through, God says that there can be a joyful noise, but I don't know if he was referring to what I put out, but I try, okay? Y'all, he says that our sacrifices are pleasing to him as long as we are pleased in him. So keep that in mind, that God is pleased with our worship whenever we are most pleased in him. That's our heart. Now, you and I, uh, if, you, if you look at that sacrifice, you might be thinking of, of Abel back in Genesis 4-4. Uh, That's where Abel offered his sacrifice. Cain offered his sacrifice. Cain offered an animal sacrifice from, from, his, uh, from his flock. And so you might be thinking, okay, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. God is pleased with Noah's sacrifice. There has to be something there. Y'all, it's that heart of worship. It was the first response to a high and holy God. This was normal, by the way, in the Old Testament. Um, I was joking with someone earlier, and I said, yeah, when, whenever you see that person again, tell them, to, tell them to bring their chicken and goat for their sacrifice, and then there will be continued unity with our church. Like, just kind of making a light of that Old Testament law. We're, we're kind of disconnected from that now because Christ is our law. He fulfilled the law. We don't need goats and chickens in our backyard for the sake of sacrifice because Christ is the fullness of the sacrifice that they were all pointing to. But this was normal for them. This was not barbaric. This is how they worship. How do you and I worship? We bring lives of sacrifice. Like, and that brings us joy. Sacrifices stink whenever you don't see the value of it. But when you see the value and the worth of it, then sacrifice is so worthy and so worth it. So whenever our view of God is down here on our level, then sacrifice hurts. Whenever our view is, is of God in the heavens beyond all of eternity, and one day we will dwell in his unapproachable light, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever, and he is all beauty and glory and radiant riches. Whenever that's that God, then I will freely sacrifice and it will not hurt. But as long as my view of God is down here, then sacrifice hurts. 
So we must always be reminded. This is why we need each other, Christians. Like that's why God gave us the church, not bound in walls, but everywhere, so that everywhere we can go, we can be reminded, yes, but there's a God who's greater than that circumstance. There's a God who's greater than this world. There's a God who's greater than the flood. There's a God who's greater than everything. And so we have to sacrifice our lives. So we don't sacrifice animals. I think that was easy. We sacrifice our lives. We sacrifice our voices. We sacrifice our finances, our talents, our gifts, our thoughts, our emotions. Everything of all that we are, we bring them and sacrifice to God because he's worth it. And what I mean by sacrifice and worship. Our sacrifice is worship. There's so many scriptures too, and, I, and they're right. Make sure you worship with a pure heart. Make sure that we're not those people who worship with their lips, but their heart is far from And We need to preach those. But you also need to hear that when you are most pleased in God and you worship him with a pure heart, he is pleased with you as inadequate and as insufficient as you feel like it is when your heart is his he delights over you he delighted in what noah did where he where god's heart heart once grieved uh, for mankind right before the flood god's heart is pleased with the sacrifice of noah he's not always angry he's not always cold he's not always distant He's not always in judgment of the world trying to flood it. He stands in righteous judgment. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, all of the judgment that was due to you has been paid fully on the back and in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's absolutely pleased with who we are when we are most pleased in who he is. So we don't have to be able to sing well. We just got to sing to it. We can start a duet. Nobody will listen to it. <laughs> All right. So, so here's what I'm going to look at there. Noah is obedient in the midst of the flood. His first response is to worship the Most High God. May we also do that. But what I want you to see is the faithfulness of God. Because sin's not done. Right? The flood uh, purged the world of sin, but it did not purge sin from man. It got rid of the sinfulness of man that was on the face of the earth, the physical reality of it. But Noah, we see that the sin that began in Adam goes to Noah, and it's going to spread through his descendants again. Two more chapters away, and we're at the Tower of Babel where man is saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build our heights to the heavens. Look at how great we are. Sin doesn't stop with Noah. It's still going to continue on. And yet God, knowing that, is pleased with the sacrifice in that moment, knowing what lies ahead. And he says, you know what? I am not going to flood the world again. You know why? Because man is always evil. In other words, what's the point in flooding the world again? Like if I flooded for, for sin, what's the point? He's always evil. Every intention of his heart is evil. Y'all, if that sounds harsh, I mean, I kind of got to pair that with Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That with the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. If that sounds harsh, it's truth. I mean, it explains why we are who we are. I mean, that's a lot of what I'm, that's a lot of what Paul was wrestling with in Romans. It's a lot of what I wrestle with, God why? Like, why are we the way that we are? Because our hearts are bent towards evil from our youth. Chas, uh, she just took all the, the kids back, and 
And that's a room full of cute, adorable, very sweet sinners. Okay? You and I do not have to teach them how to be jealous. We do not have to teach them selfishness or anger or frustration. We don't have to teach them any of those things. We don't have to teach them greed. As they grow older, we don't have to teach them lust or envy. It's just who we are. From our youth, that sin is there. And when they smile, we forget that. But it explains why they do what they do. It explains why you and I did what we did before Christ and delighted in it, or it didn't even phase us. And it explains why we're still kind of prone to, to come back to it. Because our hearts are evil factories. And you preach that in many churches, and you're going to have a really low attendance. We'll see what next week looks like. Right, everybody goes on vacation next week. Here's what R.C. Sproul said. I liked how he said it. you got to think about it. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So we didn't get the title of sinner because we started sinning and said we sin because our nature is to sin. Like We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. If that seems harsh, I just want to lovingly, pastorally remind you it's biblically accurate. Put it in this context. If God, in physical presence, were to come into this room and He were to face-to-face begin to discuss what was in your heart, and he was beginning to tell you what's in your thoughts. And he began to discuss with you, like in this room, face to face, what it is you were thinking, what it is you were drawn to, what it is you did, what it is you hid. Like if he just starts to explain, and you have that moment with your holy God, tell me that that's not a biblically accurate sentence. It is. It is for me, and it is for all of us. We're not as holy as we want to be. Our hearts are still prone to wonder. So praise God that he doesn't cast us out. But there's a reason. And I I actually kind of laugh whenever I read, um, though it's a dark sentence. I laugh whenever I read verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I kind of just go, ha. In other words, I'm not going to flood the world again because he's just going to sin again. Like, what's the point? There's a better way. There's a better judgment. There's a better sacrifice. There's Jesus Christ who will come and fulfill all of that. Flooding, y'all, will bring terror. And, and I don't know if y'all, y'all grew up under pastors, but they would preach the terror and the anger of God and the judgment of God, and it was kind of fear-motivating. And so you, we can respond to fear, but fear and terror do not cast out sin. Only the Savior cast out sin. So what we want to hold up is, yes, Holiness, yes, judgment of God. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Yes, the righteousness of God. But you know what's greater than judgment and righteousness and fear? The love of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came from eternity and stepped into this world and said, I will bring you with me. That's what we want to always uphold. Because if I am pursuing that Savior, then my eyes are not on this world. And I love evil less and less. So, that's what that means. It means that naturally our hearts are prone to evil, but supernaturally they are drawn to holiness. That's a work of God. That's why we just prayed for our leaders. That's why we prayed for the lost, because that's a work of God. I do want to take one little caveat with parents, because we have lots of parents um, in this room. And like we're missing several of our parents who have their kids. But just real quick, remember, 
Yes, adorable. Yes, cute. Wonderful. Love them. I will, I will tell you why my kids are better than any other kids in the world. And I will give freely for them and of them for their, for their joy. But they are sinners. Therefore, we must be patient with our children for they have a sinful nature like ours. You know why they act like sinners? Because they are. But the second point, hear me very clearly because this is so different than the world. We must also be diligent in disciplining our children for they have a sinful nature like ours. And God calls us to discipline and disciple our children. Refusing to discipline and disciple our children is biblically disobedient to Scripture. We have to. How we do it is different from child to child, even within a household. My three do not respond to discipline the same way. But you know what I am told in Scripture? To discipline my child so that they can know that training. All right, so I'm, I mean this from the trenches, covered in mud, and as an absolute failure. Like, I am in the parenting trenches with you. But parents, you need to hear this. Parenting is hard, but it's way too important for us to be lazy about it. It's way too important. It's hard because it's important. Is it worth the 18 years? But I also know it doesn't end with 18. It goes into 20 and 30 and older, right? (laughs) Parenting's hard because it's so important. And we are called as parents to discipline and disciple and train our kids. Y'all, if they won't accept our discipline and our training and they love us and know us, then how in the world are they going to respond to a God that they can't see and can't know? It's training. It's stair-stepping them towards that obedience. Okay, I'm going to go real quick. Um, let's get to this covenant. What's, what's, you got to know this about the covenant. Um, I'm just going to fly through. There's about four things in that covenant, and then we're going to get to the conclusion. Okay, but you need to know the covenant means to cut. The word covenant means to cut. It's really cool whenever you know why it's called to cut. It's called to cut because they cut the animals in half. That's really cool. Like, I like it whenever there's a simple explanation. Why did they choose that Hebrew word? Because it's simple. They cut the animals in half. Watch this. First off, uh, let me cover. A covenant is a treaty. It's, a, it's, a, it's an agreement. So, whereas you and I would say, okay, deal, and we would shake, we're covenanting together. We're agreeing with strong stipulations on both sides that this is what you're going to do, this is what I'm going to do. We're covenanting together. Like, that's our deal, whenever there's full trust and honor in it, that's technically a covenant. And you'll see it honored in, or you'll see it expressed in different ways throughout the Old Testament. We don't really use that word a whole lot, but whenever we do talk about our membership here, we do talk about covenanting because we take it seriously. So that's why we call it covenant membership. It's a strong agreement between both parties, and covenant is a biblical word. So why not call it a covenant membership rather than a promising membership? Right? Okay. So covenant is just a cool word. It means to cut. So it's a strong agreement and the blood of the covenant is what sealed the covenant. Whereas we handle most things today by handshake and by signature, a covenant was sealed by blood. So whenever Noah sacrifices the, the animals and it becomes a pleasing aroma, the blood of those animals is what would seal the covenant. The animal was cut So there's a covenant, and then that blood of the animal would seal the covenant. It's what solidified it and made it true and everlasting. Some of you are already doing the math. 
We now have the new covenant in which the Lamb of God spilled His blood and sealed the new covenant on our behalf. These are just shadows of the greater reality of what Christ is for us. Okay, so in Noah's covenant, verse 2, here's the first thing. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Into your hand they are delivered. So, it's easy if you don't try to rationalize everything, if you just trust Scripture, then it makes sense why all those animals could be on the ark and he didn't have to worry about all the bloodshed of it. There was peace and unity on the ark amongst all the animals and mankind. Now, in the new world, there's dread between them. Right? So now that unity of that cohesive creation where everything was good, though it was um, breaking, that's now completely broken. Animals will now fear and act out of terror towards man. This explains the brokenness. Um, so that's there. That's part of this covenant. 9.3, every moving thing... Oh, I'm so excited about 9.3. Every moving thing that lives... And if it's moving and it's living, it's meat. Okay, so every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, that was in Genesis, I give you everything now. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. I'll cover that in just like a real quick second. But you know what they get to do now? They get to eat meat. Right, go back to Genesis. From Genesis, through all those generations to this point, this is the first change in the dietary restrictions that we see. After the ark in which God saved creation or, you know, and offered salvation through it, now Noah gets to eat meat. And it's wonderful. Because you know what we have today? A fellowship meal. And we have meat. We have pork and we have chicken. And there might be some vegetables. Y'all can have those. But I'm going to honor 9-3. And everything today will be meat. All right? Okay, why does it say that they, they can't eat the lifeblood? Because... Blood is a symbol of the life that God gives every living thing that moves and breathes. And so you will see throughout uh, the law that they had to drain the blood. And that if anybody ate um, a, a sacrifice or meal or an animal and there was blood in it, then there's condemnation immediately. So it's a way of honoring and, and also avoiding the compulsion of, you know what, I'm just going to go kill that thing and, and eat it right here. It, it allows for that that recognition that, okay, the, the blood needs to come out. God is the one who gave this animal life. I'm going to let the blood drain from it. So that's why. And you're going to see that play out in the Old Testament law quite a bit. Why the draining of blood? Because God gave the blood. So it's a way of honoring and saying, um, I'm not going to eat the blood that's in it. Um, but you also see that that's actually in the, no, the Noahic covenant. Noahic uh, is Noah with an IC on it. So Noahic. Okay, you just let that roll off your tongue. Somebody says, what did y'all talk about it at church? The Noahic Covenant. And you just keep rolling. Okay, 9-5. For your, this is a big one. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, and I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God is made in his own image. Y'all, this is where God introduces capital punishment. Let me look at it. If anyone kills a man, by man he shall be killed. That's not the point of the sermon. I'm just saying it's there. God is bringing justice, not now from the heavens, but he's saying to men, there needs to be justice on earth. Abel's murder was unavenged. Lamech delighted in his murdering. Or if you go back to, to um, I believe that was in Genesis 6, maybe it was in 5. But now, if man kills man the man can be killed by man. 
What's the pastor's take on this? Honestly, my take on this is, I don't, I don't know if that's the most important part of it. Because I think that what God intended for good, like to bring justice, to allow justice to be on the earth, as mankind does, we've corrupted it too. And so corruption has, has been brought into this. And we can see and we can study and we know statistically the corruption of this. I still don't know if that's the most important part. It's this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The last eight words. Why capital punishment? For God made man in his own image. That's the heart of it. Why do I say that that's the most important part? You know what we just read? God destroyed all life. All life. If you're an Israelite and you're reading this for the first time and you just read the flood narrative and you know your history and we're sitting here right here, then we might begin to calculate, maybe rightfully so, but I'm going to tell you not. But we might begin to calculate that what is life to God? I mean, really, we're just we're grasshoppers, we're a mist, we're a vapor. God doesn't really care about life on earth. And that's just not true. I think that's what this reminds us of. That God cares deeply and strongly about life on earth because we, mankind, were made in his own image. I think that's the heart of it. The heart of it is that for one man to murder another is to murder the image of God in that person. Where do I lay out on, where do I stand on capital punishment? Let's drink coffee and have a really weird hey, I know this and I know this, but this is where, oh, that's not true in this news report, this one's true in that news report. Uh, that's not the, the thrust of it. He does introduce capital punishment, but I think that what we need to dwell on is for God made man in his own image. That's why he introduces capital punishment. There must be justice on earth, and to murder another man is to destroy the image of God in that person. But it also reminds us that God cares deeply about life. The fact that he would destroy the whole world does not mean that he didn't care about life. It means that he cared even more so about holiness and sin. But we sometimes take what God cares about in holiness and sin and we misapply it to a situation. So it reminds the Israelites, it reminds us, God cares about life. Therefore, every man and woman and child has been made in the image of God and worthy of full dignity and honor and respect. Each and every person bears the image of God in them, and it may be clouded or corrupted by sinful desires. No doubt, when you're dealing with that person at that stoplight, and they keep inching forward, and you're like, no, it's my turn, and you're wondering why they're such a horrible sinner, because they're about to take your spot, they are just clouded in their image of, in, in their image of man, or their image of God. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But, but whenever we see sinners doing corrupt, evil, wicked things, you know, we live in a dark world, we have to remember that they were still made in the image of God. They were still made in the image of God. Don't get it. I don't understand it in my flesh. Still made in the image of God. But I'm also going to step back and just say that each and every person bears the image of God, though it's clouded or corrupted by sinful desires. But those, those desires and those acts don't remove the value of the person. So, every life, that of the old, the young, the man, the woman, every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, um, every 
uh, every person who is near death, every fetus in his or in his mother, his or her mother's womb, that of the poor, that of the rich. Every single person is made in the image of God, and God cares about that very life because it's the life that He gave. Our job and our responsibility of the church in this world is to always proclaim and fight for the image of God in each and every one of them and to defend it. So, we'll do it for for the baby in his or her mother's womb and for those who are nearing death. And then we will go to every tongue and tribe and nation, even within our city and in the world, because they they were made in the image of God and they were meant to bear it. So, capital punishment, we'll have coffee. It's there. Is it, has it been corrupted by man? Just like every good thing that God gives us. So it's more complicated. But if we hold to everything and everyone made in the image of God, that, that frames it. And then it says in verse 11, this is the last thing of the covenant. I've established my covenant with you, my firm, solid agreement sealed by the blood, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the flood waters. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I've set my bow, that's a rainbow, in the clouds, by the way. Cool Hebrew word for bow is battle bow. So this was like an archer would have a battle bow that he would take to war. That's the same term used for the, the bow in the heavens here. God has hung up his battle bow in the heavens. That's pretty cool. All right. It's in the clouds. You remember it. Okay, so why does this even matter? Go ahead and start flipping to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And this is our conclusion, too. Like, why does this matter? We're going to walk through 2 Peter, and, and then we're going to be done. So why does all of this matter? Two things as you're turning there. Number one, this passage in Genesis reminds us that we live today because of God's mercy. He sustained us to today. You heard the gospel because he sustained the world to the point for you to respond to the gospel. We sing today because though sinfulness is everywhere, he is determined not to flood and destroy the world in that way ever again. We live in the days of Noah, and we live now in the days of mercy. So that reminds me of that. I get to be a child of God because he didn't flood the world again. Also, just for fun... I get to eat meat because of this passage. Okay. I hope Andy listens to this podcast. Fully delights and says amen. All right. Second is this. And y'all are all at 2 Peter. Now find chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Secondly, this passage reminds us that God will judge sin because of God's holiness. But listen to this very carefully. He said, I will never flood the world again. But then he says... Later in Scripture, it will be judged by fire. That's the passage we're going to read. No longer flooded by water, it will be burned by fire. There's a final judgment on this world. Why? Because God God doesn't care about life and He's a mean, vindictive God? No! He cares about holiness and sin and righteousness. Anyone who says that God does not love life or that God does not love people are that God is cold and vindictive and an angry God who is distant and callous and has nothing to do with us has not read the narratives and the gospels of Jesus Christ. This is not a God who is far. He's a God who has condescended from heaven who said they are so lost 
that every good thing I send them, they corrupt. The one thing that they cannot corrupt is my son. Is my son. And he comes and he walks and he lives a sinless life. It says there was no deceit in his mouth. He never sinned. And yet he walks to the cross and he says, okay, all of creation, all of time, all the saints, everyone who will call my name. And he takes our sins, he puts them upon himself, and then he is beaten, mocked, and scorned. We couldn't corrupt him. He corrupted himself by taking our sin. So, anyone who says that God is an uncaring God, they don't. They've heard the wrong story of Jesus. He's the caring God who said, you can't, you can't do it without me. You're right. You can't find your way to me. I've tried every other way. It doesn't work. Here's my son. Love him. Believe in him. He will bring you along the way. So believers, what we need, I, I believe that 2 Peter is the real conclusion to the Noah narrative. Read it with me. And I'm going I'm to stop along the way, and then we're going to pray and, and sing a song of reflection. This now, Peter writes, this now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So he's writing to, to Christians. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What does it mean to scoff? It means you know the rules or you know the truth and you scoff at it. You just kind of cast it aside. So scoffers are going to come in the last days. They're going to scoff. Why? Because they are following their own sinful desires. They don't have secret knowledge. They have sinful desires. And so they are pursuing sinful desires. So they are scoffing at the truth of what God's Word says. You line those things up, and if you have God's Word in the Bible, and then you have these new revelations, the new revelations lose because Scripture tells us exactly everything and all that we need to know. What is their new knowledge? It's a sinful desire. Verse 4, they will say, the scoffers will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, you're looking forward to God coming. Look around. He's not coming. Everything's the same from beginning to end. Then it goes on. says, for they deliberately, another version says willfully, they deliberately and willfully overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, day one, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, day two. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water, and perished. Where's the promise of His coming? Everything continues on just like it has from the beginning of time to the end of time. And it says that they will deliberately, willfully, intentionally overlook this, that God created the world and that He flooded the world. They will deny the flood. They will deny that God created everything. So they are denying the whole Noah narrative in the final days. I mean, just, you can find that one. Google it. You can find plenty who deny it. Plenty of Christians and pastors and preachers and theologians who are leading seminaries who would readily deny that this must have been a regional flood because otherwise it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it does whenever you're serving that big God. Okay, but they're going to scoff and they're going to deny these things. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth, here it is, that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, where he once flooded, he is going to bring fire. Do you know why we pray for the lost? Because if the lost are not found in Christ, that's their judgment. Well, we need to be praying for the lost. Your worst enemy 
person who just drives you absolutely crazy, whatever political affiliation you have, is that what we really want? For them to be burned up with fire. And that's temporary. And then to face an eternal judgment where fire doesn't cease. I'm going to keep going. Peter then says, but do not, this is for us, cross up, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Y'all lean into verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all of this, it's all going to be gone, y'all. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, cross life, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There's about 27 sermons there, okay? Listen to 11 very clearly in our language for today. Since all of these things, since everything in this world is going to be burned up by fire, what kind of people must Christians be today? What must we be doing? We should be living lives of holiness and godliness. It then goes on. And it says we do this while we wait in verse 12, while we wait for the day of the Lord to come. Then it goes on, verse 13, according to his promise, we're waiting for this new heaven and this new earth where righteousness dwells. Like this is what we're waiting for. And then verse 14 is really our application. I'm going to have you pray. Therefore, if all this is true, if he flooded the world, if in the last day scoffers come, if God has been patient until he brings us to salvation as he's waiting patiently to bring others to salvation and if everything's going to be burned up and there's judgment with all these things are to be true what kind of people must we do we must be waiting verse 14 waiting for these while we wait for these be diligent christians to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace so that's our conclusion today all of this passes away absolutely everything burned up by fire so what kind of person should you and I be? We should strive to be found by him, diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish and at peace. So we're going to pray. And I want to encourage you in this. You Do you know how you are found without spot or blemish and at peace? In Christ. There is no spot, there is no blemish in Christ. If you're his, it's filthy and wicked as you may have been his gospel his blood covers it all and his his blood that is shed the lamb of god that great sacrifice that seals that covenant and you have peace because he has sealed you and he is bringing you home but then now what as christians whenever we keep putting new blots and new blemishes and new spots and the lack of peace in our lives our hearts are evil 
they are prone to wonder. Whenever we were saved, we weren't saved from sinning. We were saved from the penalties of our sin. But it doesn't mean we get to keep sinning. It means that you and I need to pray that God equips us with a spirit and a strength so that we will quit sinning, so that we will quit desiring to sin, and so that we will learn to rest in Him. So that we will offer a right sacrifice that is pleasing in His sight. So my, my heart and for you is this, and for myself. In conclusion, spend time in prayer before we ever sing. God, show me my sin so that I can repent of it. Give me the strength and the diligence to follow after you. And God, give me the peace that I know I have in you. And you do that in the privacy of your hearts. I don't need to list out some things you can check off the box there of what you need to be praying and checking for. Your heart, that's God's heart. That's y'all's conversation. I'm just supposed to take us to Scripture so that His Scripture can sanctify us and challenge us in new ways. And we'll be praying the same way. God, show me my sin so that I might not sin against you again. And then we're going to delight in the goodness of our God, knowing that if we are pleased in who He is, He is most pleased in our worship. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, as we get ready to have this time of personal reflection, Lord, may Satan not have a playground. Lord, would you guard the hearts and the minds and the affections of what we have for you, and may we delight that you are God. And you have forgiven us for all time. But Lord, we are prone to sin. Help us to always seek forgiveness and to always strive to be diligent to follow hard after you. But Lord, deal with our hearts as only you can. And help us to trust your spirit. Amen.